Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I've got Kevin O'Leary from the popular TV show Shark Tank on the phone. Kevin, how's it going? Very good. Thank you very much. Um... You know, Kevin, I just read your book. I guess it had come out in Canada previously, and you've updated it. It came out in the United States just recently, The Cold Hard Truth, the cold hard truth on Family, Kids, and Money. And I have to say, this book blew me away. Like, I totally was surprised about the contents of this book. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, I get thousands of emails every month. Primarily because of Shark Tank and the work I do on CNBC and other financial news networks. And I always get the same questions over and over and over again. So I finally sat down and said, I'm going to take a hundred of these questions that seem to be common across multiple years and talk about these issues and put them in the book. And that's really what it's about. This book isn't about how to become rich. It's about surviving in the world and, and the reality of your relationship with money, both as an individual and as a family. Well, you know, I, the whole idea that you can write a book that turns anybody into a billionaire seems ridiculous to me. This is about living. Well, well, and it's very interesting because you're, I mean, I want to get into some of the more details of the book. And obviously you have this reputation on Shark Tank. You're called Mr. Wonderful. And it's this almost sarcastic title that you have there. But <laughs> then thinking about the book in contrast to the book, the book is basically about how to create a family dynasty and you define that, you know, in a, in a broader terminology than just family, but it's really about how you build the relationships in, in your life that are going to last more than a lifetime. And, and, you know, money is often a piece of that pie, as you say, but it's not the entire pie. And you give uh, one, one, one question I have for you on this, and then I have another question unrelated to the book, but then we'll get back to the book. One question on this, it seems like you mix basic personal finance stuff that I, I should think everybody knows with some really deep wisdom that I would never have thought of. Like, you know, it's one thing, okay, I'm going to um, keep track of my cab money when I'm dating, you know, which is, by the way, surprising advice coming from Mr. Wonderful anyway. But then you have this thing, which I never thought of, which is the three-year rule uh, before you marry someone so you can really see whether they're compatible with you in terms of your deficiencies and money and all these other things. Yeah, definitely. You know, what I really found interesting doing the research, I spent two years working on that book, is I did something that I thought would be different. I asked a series of divorce lawyers to give me some of their time. 
and their records just blacking out the individual names. And what I found so interesting is that most people assume that the number one reason for dissolves when you dissolve a marriage, the average is about five to seven years and marriages fall apart. That has a lot to do with infidelity. That's not true. The number one reason, 85, 90% of the time when people break up, it's under stress of financial reasons. And when you think about it, how important money is in a relationship, you might as well treat it with the same respect that it is because if it really does break up marriages, you've got to solve for it first. Right, like that's you, why three years is not a bad time to spend with something. You'll learn a lot about it. So there's the three years... And then there's the um, another interesting concept, which is to do relationship due diligence. And I'm going to broaden the definition, although you, you kind of do it in the book as well. It's not just about relationships with your wife. This You even have like due diligence forms that people should fill out. But this is like relationships with potential partners, potential friends, and even, you know, kind of, I was thinking about it, boy, how would I answer these questions? It's almost like this is this is like relationship due diligence on myself when I started filling out the forms. Well, that's what it's meant to be. I mean, it does bring down relationships to the most common elements of support, financial. I mean, one of the reasons people marry and they have for generations is a financial union. That's what a family is. It's a financial support system in addition to an emotional one. But money is a huge part of it. So why not treat it in terms of that way? If you're buying somebody's company, and you're taking a lot of capital and putting it at risk, which is the same as what a marriage is, and you think about, should you divorce, you lose half your assets. Why not do the same due diligence process to marriage as you would to the risk you're taking when you make an investment? That was my philosophy. People thought it was a little controversial, but now many people are doing it. Well, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a slightly controversial view. What if you simply fall in love with somebody who it seems compatible in every other way, but let's say she's broke and an artist and you're happy to support her dreams and she's happy to support your dreams, but you're not necessarily financially compatible in the way you define it. So love is one of the great gifts that human beings have for each other. But if you look at what happens to love over a long period of time, it it evolves like everything else in life. It changes. And one of the reasons people that have very, very long marriages survive and last if they understand that love's one component of it. If you are in love with an artist and she is an alcoholic spender, in other words, constantly spends all of her capital all of the time and puts you in debt, that fond relationship you have with her is going to change. There's no question about it. And so you might as well understand the compatibility of somebody going into it. And you definitely will find that out over 36 months. Whatever people's bad traits are, they can't keep them hidden. For 36 months. Well, and why I think the rule is so important. And and two points on that. One is you dated your wife, uh, Linda, right? Is her name? You dated your wife yes. for six years. You did. It sounds like you did like as you mentioned, you did double like relationship due diligence. Well, you know, it's true. But I was a, I was a young man. I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to have children. I was starting my company, and I was very consumed with that. And if I could do it again, I would have had children much earlier because I've enjoyed them so much. But like any marriage, and we've been together now for 25 years, we've had plenty of ups and downs. I don't believe anybody can tell me that they've been in a long-term relationship. They haven't had their challenges. That's just the nature of life. 
But, you know, I talk about in the book what it takes to survive those changes. And there is a, there is a process. I mean, you've got to, you can't ask more from a union than it'll ever give you. You have to be realistic, realistic in terms of what it's going to provide. But the, the formation of families and, the, and having children, the only reason you should marry is if you are planning on having children. There's absolutely no reason to marry somebody if you're not starting a family. What, about, what about insurance benefits? Sorry, say it again? What about insurance benefits? I'm just trying to think off the top of my head what other legal reason there might be for a marriage. No, there's no reason for a marriage if there's no children. I'm, I just, I'll tell you why. The economic benefits of marriage only accrue to families, if you think about it, because the risks you take forming a legal union if you're not planning on having any children are very, very heavy. You're going to lose half your assets. You're going to force liquidation of your assets in, in a breakup of a marriage. And so, depending on what state you're in, some are more punitive than others. So you better make really sure what you're doing when you form that bond. That's a legal bond. It's no different than forming a corporation. Sorry to make it so blunt and dry, but that's exactly what's happening in marriage. You, you actually even take it one step further, and you really hit at a Western sacred cow, which is you, base, you suggest that arranged marriages might not be so unreasonable as people in the West think. Well, that's, that's what shocked me about the data. When you go and look at unions that have lasted more than 30 years, and you really ask the participants, the woman or the man, on how that union was formed, more often than not, so more than half the time, they'll tell you that it was arranged through their parents or their relatives. And it turns out why that works. And, you know, we often thought of it coming from other cultures. But the truth is, if you marry somebody from the same social strata as you, that have the same religious or moral obligations that you have, that have the same history, that are very close to who you are, your probability of remaining with them for a very long period of time is higher because it's almost, you've, you've mitigated some of the risk out of it. You know, and it, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, but I'm, I'm just saying it's not, when you go look at unions and really study marriage, you're going to find out that it sounds shocking, but you're probably better off having your mate proposed to you by parents and family members and extended family who know what works. You don't. You're young. Well, it, it, it's funny because you mentioned right. you you mentioned sort of the several aspects of successful marriages. Um, one is, and excuse me if I don't say the word correctly, but homogamy, like you basically come from similar backgrounds and, and interests. Yes. Health, uh, similar, I guess, social uh, uh, intelligence or social abilities, uh, similar education. In fact, you emphasize that the wo the woman should be better educated in many cases. And, of course, a similar understanding of money and financial stability as, as the key components of, of a good marriage. And, again, I have to say I can't believe I'm talking to Mr. Wonderful about, about marriage, but, but that's good. <laughs> well, look, you know, the reason I, that, that people call me that is I'm the only shark that tells the truth, and we're talking about the truth here. One of the things I find so interesting about you know, when we talk about money, and this applies to marriage as well, there is no gray zone. You either make money or you lose it. And I don't understand people that, particularly on Shark Tank, and Barbara and Laurie are guilty of this all the time, when they try and make someone feel good about the fact that their business is failing, and they should continue on that enterprise, 
knowing that all the family money is being you know, wasted. I'd rather just tell them the truth, because the truth is going to be the truth tomorrow and the week after that and when they go bankrupt. Well, so it, you might as well deal with it marriage, too. It, it's funny because, you know, related to that, and, and, and I get this question a lot, too, so you must get this question a thousand times. When should someone give up on a business and you basically have the 36 month rule. Like if you're not making like decent profits in 36 months, then you don't have a business, you have a hobby. And this is like one of the biggest questions people have when they start a business is when should I give up on it? If you can't make money in three years, it isn't a business. And so as long as you're honest with yourself, no one wants to fund losses past three years. Nobody should work on something that has no merits in terms of providing returns. Unless you call it what it is, a hobby, something you like to have fun with and you don't mind losing money on. Isn't that that's the biggest problem entrepreneurs have? They just don't let go. And that's why you have to take it behind the barn and shoot it. Isn't that funny, though, that that three years is the same as your, your three-year rule for, you know, pa- date for three years before you marry? Yeah, but it has a lot to do with the cycle of life if you think the average age is going to be 75 to 80. You obviously have to think about how much time you spend on any one thing. And so you have to give it enough to to learn something, but not so much that it becomes a large percentage of the only years you have on earth. Think about that. So in the book, you also talk a lot. I mean, and I really appreciate this as as the father of of two daughters. You talk a lot about children and educating children about money. And I kind of just want to share an anecdote with you about Shark Tank and how I educate my children about money. So often we watch Shark Tank and they love it. One's 13 years old, the other 16, both daughters. And what I do is I pause throughout. So if somebody goes on and says, well, I want $337,000 for 22% of my company, I'll pause and have them do the math in their head, for instance. What's this guy valuing his company at? But then, you know, we watch the deals that you guys offer, you know, you and the other sharks offer to the entrepreneurs, and they noticed... Two, two things. So I'm getting advice from my kids on this. And one of them, one of them is a, a, an observation. The other one is a question. The question is, you always, not always, but often you say, okay, I'm going to give you, I'm, I'm making up a number. I'm going to give you $100,000, but I want 3% cash on every item sold, you know, 3% of the price on every item sold. And I still own 25% of the company. And my, my 13-year-old's question is, how is the company going to grow if Mr. Wonderful is taking a good amount of the profits, at least initially in a company's beginnings? That's from my 13-year-old. It's a great question. But the truth is, if you look at the market, stock market of all companies over the last 40 years, and this includes every company in America, 71% of the returns of the market came from dividends, which is a return of capital not from capital appreciation. In other words, it wasn't because the company grew that you made your money. It's because it returned a portion of every quarter's profit to you in the form of cash. But so, that's usually when a company has matured. No, that's not true. It, it's agnostic to whether it's growing or matured or not. This is what people's big mistake is. It doesn't matter. If you, if you think about a company like Google or even Yahoo would be a better example. It's been around longer since the mid-90s. Yahoo has never returned any capital to shareholders. It started at $12 a share, went all the way to 280 and all the way back to 12 All the way through, it never returned any money to shareholders. So what that means, if you look at the long history over two decades, 
is basically no one ever made any money on Yahoo stock because it never took a portion of its profits and returned it. So your daughter's raised a great question, but the truth is, if you know what I know, because this is what I do every day, I'm the chairman of, of O-Shares, which invests globally. We have hundreds of companies we invest in, small ones, large ones, you name it. And so I've learned over a long period of time, and I'm not emotional about it, if a company that has no way of returning capital to you, your probability of making money off it is extremely low because 71% of the times you'll be wrong. It's just that simple. I don't care what the other sharks do. In the beginning, they were always giving me a hard time about my royalty deals. The highest returns on Shark Tank are all the royalty deals I've done, the number one being Wicked Good Cupcakes. Now, if you see sharks, they're always trying to emulate my structures. They're learning from me, and that's very good. They're my students, and sometimes <laughs> I can invoice them for my time. Well, okay, so here's, here's the observation from my 16-year-old is um, – you sort of, you sort of own the room on Shark Tank in the sense that if there's a deal that's interesting to you, you kind of make the first offer so that you you essentially anchor where the offers are going to start coming from. But often, and this is her observation, you'll make the hail mary offer. So if somebody was asking for five hundred thousand for ten percent of their company, valuing their company at five million, you might say, "I'll take you know fifty one percent of your company." For one hundred thousand, so so that's this hail mary off offer where they might say yes, in which case you have got this huge deal, or they might say no and you just move on. Well, that's a good observation, but you know it, it's one um, negotiating tactic. I use others, and you've got to remember in Shark Tank the dynamic changes by the minute because. If there's more than one shark interested in a deal, anything can happen. Two sharks can get together, they compete against each other, they might just go out on their own. There's always the wild card of, you know, one shark willing to pay a stupid price, in which case I let them do it. I like to look at it from this perspective. I never cry over still milk. I know that a few minutes later, another deal is coming right through the door. So if I don't get exactly what I want, I don't do it. It's that simple. And I've got lots and lots of companies now, over 30 of them. And I've had the highest returns. I've, I've sold um, Groove Books to Shutterfly last month for $14.5 It's the highest return ever on Shark Tank. Wow. We could get cupcakes with the highest internal rate of return on a royalty deal. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with my portfolio. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to change my style at all. And that's just the way it is. Every shark has a different tack, and that's what makes it so interesting. But you've got to respect them. All of these people have been very successful in what they've done in life. They've been amazing operators. They've actually run businesses. They come from different sectors of the economy. They bring billions of dollars to the table. And there we are, sitting there competing with each other. That's why the show works. It's so interesting. Well, you know, also, you, you have another interesting technique. Often, you'll, um, you know, maybe there'll be a couple offers on the table. And then you kind of change the dynamic of, of the competition among the sharks. You'll ask the entrepreneurs to leave the room. And then you'll turn to the other sharks and say, let's join forces and do this one together, which essentially eliminates the competition and, get, and gets you a better deal. And I think that's a very interesting technique as well. I, it is, because if I know I can't get it myself and I want a piece, that's the best tactic. And then I like to squeeze the head of the entrepreneur so I can get more equity because I've got to share it. So if there's only one offer on the table, I can drive the price. That's so, the way it works. I mean, that's the nature. Sometimes it's not a good idea to leave the shark tank, even if I ask you to. <laughs> You know, you know, and, and there, there's one more technique that, that I've observed that, that you do, which I think is really interesting, is that you're 
and this this applies in a lot of areas of life, but you're like the summarizer of the deal. So at some point in a scene, you know, and I'll call a scene an entrepreneur is making his pitch. At some point in the pitch, you, uh, you know, all the offers come in, including yours, and you'll say to the entrepreneur, okay, you have these four offers and you'll list the offers. What are you going to do? And while you're listing the offers, they're not 100% exactly worded the way the other people did word them, but you're now the source. So the entrepreneur is responding to you rather than the other sharks. Works for me every time. Yeah, no, I think that's a very smart strategy. I, I, I have used that myself. That's very uh, uh, perceptive. So, so again, I, I find Shark Tank to be a great way to teach kids about money. So, you know, what, one, what, when you're in Shark Tank, though, what exactly, like, when, you, when someone first walks in the room, what are you looking at immediately? Just their, 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 their aura, you know. After all of the time I've spent doing Shark Tank, all of the years I've been doing it, you start to understand, you know, a person's just aura. If you're in the same room, it's hard to explain, but if you're there, you know what I mean. It is what it is, and people just emulate something when they're standing in front of you. What, what, does it turn you off when, like, an entrepreneur cries in the middle of the pitch? Yeah, there's no room for tears. Tears of money don't mix. You know, I always say, never cry for money because it never cries for you. I mean, it's ridiculous. If you think I'm going to, my propensity to invest in you goes up when you start crying in front of me, you're fooling yourself. It shows weakness and you can't take the pressure of running a business. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, I'm sitting watching people sob and just disgust me. Like, there's no room for that. Just, it, 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 I can't wait to get rid of them when they're sitting there crying. It's such a waste of time. So, 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 so what are, if somebody wants to impress specifically you uh, to do a deal, what, what kind of five things, and I'm sure you've been asked this before. I apologize for asking uh, uh, the naive question, but what five things should they essentially prepare to get you invested in them? There's only three things. Number one, you have to articulate the business opportunity in 90 seconds or less. That you find in most successful pitches. Number two, explain to me why you're the right team to execute the business plan. What makes you someone that I should trust to actually execute over the years that are going to be together as partners? And number three, you better know your numbers. If you don't know your numbers, you'll never get an investment from me. You have to understand your break-evens, your gross margin, size of market, number of competitors. Every question I ask you, you have to have an answer for regarding numbers. Or I'll personally eviscerate you. You wasted time in the shark tank. You could have given to somebody else that deserved. What about in terms of valuation? So someone's projecting, let's say, $100,000 in earnings. What, what do you like to pay in terms of multiple on earnings? No more than 7% because that's what the market pays. Uh, seven times, I should say. The market pays about seven times the private company. So... People that have ridiculous valuations, they're never going to get any money from me. Only idiots. Like If you overpay for something, you'll never get a return on it. So my attitude is if another shark wants to blow their brains, I'll let them do it. They'll learn the hard way. You well, really can't pay more than seven times. And, and, and if a company has no earnings but there are startups and there's potential, how do you, how do you um, kind of suss out whether there is true potential or not or this guy is smoking crack? I need at least a third of the company if that's the case, because I know they're going to have to raise money over time. I put very onerous terms in place in terms of anti-dilution metrics. I look for a royalty of some kind for when there's a top line. I can start getting my capital back. 
And if you don't like my terms, you don't have to do business with me. And, I have and, a very, very, very strict discipline to how I do this because I've got so many different investments, hundreds of them in my portfolio. So whether I add another one or I don't, it's kind of immaterial to me. So if I don't get exactly what I want, I don't do it. That way I know what's in my portfolio. I know how it's built. I know it can sustain time and it has a cash flow return to it. I look at my investments like a chicken on a spit dripping cash. Everything pays me something somehow. So, so, so let's say an investment starts to not work out and you're not willing to put more money in, but, but maybe some other investor is. So you're not going to make use of your anti-dilution rights. Like what's been your worst disaster so far? Uh, Cupid and I had one called Toy Guru that went to zero. We lost a quarter of a million bucks on that. And um, it went to zero in about three months. It's the worst disaster. And you're going to get some of those sometimes. You can't win them all in venture investing. You're lucky if you get two out of ten. Uh, Generally in Shark Tank, you get four out of ten. Yeah, that's a high, that's a high number because two, two out of ten or even like one and a half out of ten is considered success. But I'm going to guess, and I don't know, I'm going to guess it was the team that caused the problem and that one that went that, that blazed out fast. That who caused the problem? The 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 the, te- the management team. Yeah, yeah, the management team were idiots. Correct. And and you couldn't you, obviously you couldn't test that out in the room itself because it's the, the the high stakes of the TV uh, room. Well, I mean, look, we found that out after the fact. We gave them the money, they blew their brains out, investigated. Wow, well, we found out we invested in idiots. So another part of the book. You talk about all these jobs that are kind of these cash-rich jobs where you don't need um, a huge amount of education for. Like one example is, and I didn't know this, apparently elevator repairmen make on average $73,560. So, and you don't need like basically more than you know, a vocational type knowledge to, to get that job. And you know, I, I noticed in all the jobs you listed – they weren't commodity jobs. Like you can't outsource, you know, elevator repair, for instance, or, or electric wire install. Like you can't outsource that to India. Well, that's right. Our economy provides all kinds of opportunities to make a very decent living. Some people think there's a social segment to it. I don't. I think you have to have a plan in your life. You have to survive. You have to be able to employ yourself and pay your way and support a family if you like to have one, and you have to be pragmatic about how you're going to do that. Not everybody's cut out to be an entrepreneur, not everybody wants to, but you know, even an elevator repairman or someone who starts on the shop floor could end up being the chairman because they're very good at what they do. And so I, I encourage my own kids and people that come and ask me for advice, and I teach a lot these days, you've got to get out there and find out what you're good at, something you can grow, that you're good at executing, and you have to make a living. How, how, do, you so, fi- how do you find what you're good at? You try many different things when you're young, when you can afford to. Just, you know, life is very serendipitous. You're not guaranteed anything, and nobody's going to guarantee you a return in life. You have to try things. And because you're young and you have lots of energy, you should do that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in working hard at things and trying different ideas. I delivered, I planted trees, I laid bricks, I collected garbage. I did a lot of things in my life, and um, those were important lessons for me. And so, so let's talk about that. Like... You, you, you started the learning company, which, which became your huge win, um, you know, or you, it, was, it was an earlier company before then, uh, SoftKey, uh, and it was educational software. It started out uh, back when putting CDs in the computers or disks in the computers were the, were the thing. And 
what were kind of like your hurdles along the way? Like what was, what was your worst moment where you thought to yourself, oh my God, this might not work? Well, there are many moments. The thing about television you've got to realize, or, or you know, any business, is the, it's going to have amazing ups and downs, a huge amount of volatility. Every business will. We were on the brink of bankruptcy multiple times. But that's just the nature of what entrepreneurial business is. You have to have this fortitude to live through that. So I can, you know, I can think of many, many different instances that I thought, I'm, you know, I'm done. I'm not going to make it. Like There's what? no way I'm going to survive. In running out of cash. I mean, what's a specific example? You know, well, we had, we, we had wanted to buy a company for half a billion dollars and thought we could finance it. Went into the market. We'd already come to the agreement to purchase it. And then the stock market collapsed. We couldn't issue any stock. We had to go to the debt market to do it. We found ourselves half a billion in debt. We only had 36 months to pay it off. That's not a long time. Again, that three-year theme coming back in. And when right. the third year came around, we didn't have the cash. And then all of a sudden, the market came back, and we were able to issue stock to turn that debt back in. But half a billion in debt is a lot. And it was a hostile transaction, so we had no way to reverse it. We had to deliver on the purchase. These are tough times, and you know that was that's that's what it takes. You just have to decide you're going to do it and work it out. Uh, how how would you advise someone like people don't know before they're entrepreneurs whether or not they have that fortitude or how to get it because they don't have the experience yet. How do you advise someone practicing getting that fortitude? You know, I'm not sure you can practice it. You just have to do it. And you're going to find out over time, you'll either be successful or you won't. But failure is part of the learning experience of being an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs fail. It happens. And they learn from that experience. The key is not to do the same mistake twice. Right. So, you know, the other thing in the book that I really appreciated uh, is the idea that dynasty doesn't so you you basically talk about the importance of right from chapter 1 the importance of family dynasty and immediately i think you're saying the parents should um you know stay together and build a financial foundation and teach the kids great lessons so that the kids could do the same thing but you extend the definition definition later on in a shark tank example that a family dynasty can also you can broaden the definition to include friends and, you know, what, what's the overall definition for you of uh, dynastic thinking? It's the support. When you form a dynasty, you create a, a, misc, a, a risk mitigation platform. In other words, people that are part of your dynasty have less risk of survival than if they're not part of it. That's what a family is. You're providing a support mechanism for them. That can include friends and extended relatives and new family members and you marry you may start taking care of your, your wife's parents. That's what the dynasty is. It, it, it looks out for each other, and it does it out of you know, a common bond and support. So there's periods during the dynasty's time where one member of the family will take, provide more financial support than perhaps another. These things happen for a reason. These have been time-tested across many cultures for many, many years for many, many people. And so it's not a surprise that, you know, when I talk about it in the book, that it's something that, that you know, it's not just, I didn't make it up. It's been going on forever. And, and so, so, so what, what, in this economy where 
family is getting more and more split up due to either globalization or layoffs or freelancing or outsourcing. What kind, what kind of economy do you see us heading towards? We're going to be more global. The economy is going to be based more on global enterprise. We're going to be you know, viewing the world as our markets and also our competitors. And I think kids today, they're looking at education globally. They should travel more. They should get used to other cultures. We in the U.S. aren't going to be able to just live in a microcosm of our own economy anymore. 47% of the sales of all American companies now are abroad. It's the highest it's ever been in history. There's more billion-dollar market cap companies outside of America than there are in it. These changes have all occurred in the last two years, so very, very recently. And the fact is we're in a global competition. We have to think that way. Same with families. You've got to start thinking about when you look at who your, your kids are going to marry. They're just as likely to marry somebody who's not an American than, than they are that is because they're going to find themselves working in other countries. It's going to be more of a global family and a global competition. That's what I believe. How do you think that will change politics? And the reason I ask is, like, I don't want, I personally don't watch the Republican or Democratic debates because in the United States, because it seems to me like it doesn't really matter who wins. Like, I'd rather be more up to date on whether Google is going to have a driverless car because that's going to change, you know, a trillion dollar industry. So, so how, do, how does, how does the globalization of the economy change kind of the, the power of politics? Well, I'm not sure that this, this election, everyone is different, but clearly the, you know, the, the registrants that are getting most traction and airtime aren't politicians. People are tired of politicians. So you think about, you know, Carson or Trump right now that are leading in the polls for the Republicans. They're not politicians. And the reason that's the case is people are tired now of the same old rhetoric. And I think that backlash is very interesting. It may define a new generation of voters that, that want more functionality from government. Also, the challenge you've got in the U.S., which is quite troubling, is the regulatory environment is so hard now that the reason you don't have a full job recovery, a small business that makes for 80% of the jobs, can't really afford to hire new employees. They have to hire lawyers just to comply with all the city, state, and federal regulations. And I think that's a huge problem. And I think maybe now um, we're starting to see a time when individuals are kicking back at that and saying, that's not the America that we made great years ago. We want to change that. Okay, so, so I think there's a lot of things. A lot of interesting things coming. So, so I hear that rhetoric, but I don't see that actually in in the polls. Like, uh, uh, you know, it's still the case that every year there's more regulations than the year before. It's true, but I think that's what's about to change. I mean, this last administration, and I'm not pro or con either party. I'm agnostic to politicians. I think what's happened is that really you've had a situation where. It's gone to the quite the pendulum has swung against small business and it may swing back. These things tend to self correct themselves over time. So that's so, what matters. So two quick questions to kinda close off. And by the way, again, I really appreciate you coming on my podcast and I and I was really impressed with the, the your book, the, the Cold Hard Truth on, on Family, Kids and Money. I'm gonna use these exact techniques with my kids, for instance. I think about it all the time how kids should learn savings, money, the value of money, and so on. And I think about this, too, in terms of my relationships, both both personal and, and, and business. But I'm going to ask a stupid question, which is rank your fellow sharks relative to you from, from best to worst. 
<laughs> well, I, I wouldn't do that, but I would say my favorite shark is Mr. Wonderful. I just love that guy. <laughs> of course. So, all right, fair enough. And then the other question is, obviously, you do a lot of reading. You do a lot of studying of the markets and, and, and you know, the, the different industries that you invest in and investing in general and finance in general. What are some books um, listeners now should read? Let's say the average listener is driving to work right now to their cubicle job, and I'm not criticizing that, but they want something a little bit more out of their lives. What, what books would you recommend that they start with other than Mr. Wonderful's books? Well, the one I'm reading uh, right now that I'm finding fascinating is Keith Richards called Life. It's not a biography. And uh, the, other, uh, the other one that at the same time, I kind of read two at a time, is Nixon and Kissinger. That's a very interesting book. Um, great at, you know, attributes about history you can learn a lot from. But those two will consume you. They're so, they're so differently. They're so different dynamically opposed, but interesting nevertheless. I was up till about three in the morning last night getting halfway through the Richard's Life book. It's fantastic. So, wait, wait it, it, did you say it was Keith Richards' book, Life? Or who, who's yeah, that? Yeah, it's, it's called it's, it's Keith Richards' autobiography called Life. Okay. It's interesting because that's, I wouldn't have expected those two answers, you know, given obviously your, what seems on Shark Tank like you're all consuming focus on the deal, uh, that, you're, that, that those are the two books you recommend. Yeah, well, you know, I have other interests. I'm a guitarist. I'm a cook. I have a wine company. I think you have to have a little yin and yang in your life. You can't just do business all day. You have to be, you have to try some of the arts as well just to keep yourself sharp. So I like to play guitar quite often, and I'm very busy with my wine business. And often it's in the intersections of interests that we find where our real passions are. So true. So, well, anyway, once again... Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank. I really appreciate uh, the time you spent on the podcast. I recommend the book. I'm going to include it on my book club list this month as well as, you know, distribute this podcast. And thanks again. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks, Kevin. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.